Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you guys again this morning. I'm excited to pick up where, where Steve left off in 1 John, heading into chapter 4, and over this week and the next, we get to cover the first half of, of chapter 4. So let's just jump right into the text. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. So John begins by saying, let's test these spirits that are on in the church. This reminded me, years ago, I used, when I was living in China, I've been in missions my whole life, for those that don't know the story, and I was there doing church planning, and I moved to working with a, what's called a Great Commission Company, or Businesses Missions. And this company was an incredible organization that set up factories all across the nation of China that would be factories that would be large companies that were looking at reaching the Chinese market, but we would use the factories, legitimate ones, as platforms for missions in the unreached areas. And this particular factory we were setting up made specialty chemicals for the printed circuit board industry. So very specialized, very high-tech kind of stuff. And my CEO thought it'd be fun to give me what I thought was an impossible task to kind of test me. And he told me to fly to this area, and I want you to hire all these employees. And specifically, you need to find the chief chemical engineer for this, for this process as we get the factory off the ground. Now, uh, all this would be in Mandarin. At the time, my Mandarin was pretty fluent. I could pass with most stuff. But I couldn't have a conversation with someone about chemical engineering in English, let alone in Chinese, right? I had no language for that, about chemical engineering and specialty chemicals and all the rest of it. So long story short, I went down to the place, managed somehow to find a whole bunch of candidates to get them to come to the office, and I started these interviews. And, and it starts great because I could talk all day long with just normal conversation. And then I had a friend make a cheat sheet for me of like special language or special questions for chemical engineers. I didn't know what any of them said, but I just knew how to pronounce it. And so I would get to the part of the interview, I would just ask this question, and then they would start machine gunning Chinese back at me, and I don't have a clue what's going on, right? I, I, every once in a while I pick up a word or two, I don't know what's happening. I just smile and nod my head and try to look, and then I, I move, when I think they've paused long enough, I go, oh, okay, and I ask the next question, and I move down. And, and then once that interview is done, I bring in the next guy, we do the same thing again with the next group of people. And in this process, um, I, I interviewed a bunch of people, and I don't have a clue what any of them know about chemical engineering or specialty chemicals. I can't test their knowledge on any of this stuff. It is an impossible test for me to do, and I had to make a decision purely based on gut alone, right? That was a very difficult test to be able to make. So here in this passage, John is telling them to test the spirits to see whether they're from God or not, whether or not they're a false teacher. Now, for a young church of young believers, this is kind of a difficult task to do because there's so much false teaching around and there's so many possible theological hurdles. I mean, think of all the stuff that Paul talks about in all of his letters. And now this young church is being told, get rid of the false teachers and test to make sure that none of these guys are teaching wrong things. Now, that doesn't seem like it'd be a very easy thing for them to do. It seems like a difficult task. But John in this letter is going to simplify it so much that it becomes so much easier than trying to find a chemical engineer in Mandarin, but it becomes something very, very simple and very, very black and white. So let's look more at this. So in this story, what's going on here? All right. Uh, so in this story, or in this passage, he's, uh, 
we need to go back, remind ourselves the background of the text that Steve's been talking about for a while. So the church that he's writing to has likely been around for about 50 to 70 years. That's when he's writing, or since after Christ has died is when he's writing this letter. And these churches are likely small churches. They're undergoing persecution. They're meeting in homes, and they're spread out around the area. And they're, they're quite young, they're quite insecure, and they're likely facing significant persecution at this point. And by this point, John is the only living apostle. Every other apostle has died by this point, a horrific martyr's death, and John's the only one alive. And these churches have been surviving as far as the input they've been getting because of the traveling teachers that have been going on, and the apostles' teachings, and the letters they've got. Remember, they don't have a Bible as we would know it. They might have a one or two letters of Paul that have been circulating. They have some of the Old Testament, and they have maybe parts of a gospel by this point. But they don't have a lot of that stuff, so they rely upon teachers that come in and give them that training. And so that's been very, very common for them. In fact, John's other letters, 2nd and 3rd John, are all about this. So 2nd John is written to this woman called the Chosen Lady, telling her, don't accept these false teachers. If they are teaching false things, you can't welcome them into your house. Don't invite these people into your home. Whereas 3rd John covers the other side of it. In 3rd John, I don't think we're ready for that scripture just yet. <laughs> so as in 3rd John... Um, they're, they're talking about uh, don't well or so welcome those who are welcoming the who are good teachers in your midst, right? So both those letters are about welcoming or not welcoming the false teachers because that's what's normal in that time. And so as a result of this, this is where this problem arises because there's false teachers all over the place as we see in the text. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot about false teachers that are going around. So let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 or sorry, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. So here Paul tells them, and he warns them, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So their ears are itching, and they will, they will draw unto themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear, right? Because their ears just want to hear the stuff they want to hear and get ready for this, Paul says that. And then verse 4, he says, and, and then they will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. Now, go to Acts chapter 20. And now Paul, who circled back around after his missionary journey, is heading back to Jerusalem, comes and visits again with the elders of the church in Ephesus. And here's what he tells them. Be on guard for, uh, and for, sorry, for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, when I leave, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. These are the false teachers. 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul says, among the leaders, even among you, false teachers are going to come out and going to take people away to be their own disciples rather than disciples of Christ. There's endless more, but let's look at one more from Peter. So Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he refers back to Paul, and he's telling the people, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now check this out, verse 16. As he does, this is reaping Paul, in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. 
Now, anyone ever felt that some of Paul's writings were a little hard to understand when you're in Romans and other places, right? Even Peter is acknowledging, yeah, Paul, some of his stuff's a little hard to understand, right? And so, and then he goes on and says, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. So he's saying they twisted Paul's letters as they do the other scriptures as well. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand that these false teachers are doing this, Take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Right? So this false teaching is happening all around them. It's one of the greatest problems in the church. And the primary false teaching, the largest false teaching going on at this time around when this is written is this teaching called Gnosticism. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to remind us again for those that maybe missed some of the other teachings that Gnosticism literally means having knowledge. It's about knowledge. But the way that it was primarily understood was that in Gnosticism, the, the, the basic foundation is that the body is evil or bad and the spirit is good. So everything of the flesh is bad and worthless. Only things that truly matter are the things of the spirit. That is where good happens, right? That is what matters. Things of the spirit or the mind or of knowledge. And so the implications of this were massive. So you think about the way that they would view this is that Jesus could not be fully God and fully human, right? Because you could not have God in a human body because that the body is bad, that God is good. They cannot coexist. And so when these teachers would, or when, when this teaching would come out and they would approach Jesus, you could go one of two ways. Either Jesus is fully God and was never a human being, meaning that what you, what you thought was a human was like an apparition or like a vision, or, or maybe like a modern-day hologram. Like, there, what you saw wasn't real. He was not human. He did not have flesh and blood. He could not be human because he's God. Or you go the other side, and you say, Jesus was fully human, but not God. And they would say that Jesus had like a divine spark that came and touched him, and that's what gave him a spark of divinity for a season at certain times, and that's how he did miracles and other things, right? And so you would be in one of those camps if you understood Gnosticism. Now, this would take very different application points as far as if you believe this. Because if you held on to this, it means that as, as a believer, you would say, okay, so if this is true, that means what I do with my body doesn't matter because the body's bad. So one way to take this is to say, therefore, I can do anything I want. And this was a huge point of this. It was called licentiousness. They could go anywhere they wanted with their body. They could, they could do whatever alcohol they wanted. They could have orgies. They could do anything they wanted with their body because it didn't matter. The body is bad. All that matters is the things of the mind. All that matters is the things of the spirit. And so they would go off into complete sin and, and abandonment because of that following their own pleasures. Or some would go the other direction, and they would say, the body's bad and evil, therefore we must cleanse it. Therefore we must beat it down. We must deny it any pleasure at all. And so these were the ascetics that would, that would deny themselves all food, and, 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 and they would make sure they're in pain and miserable all the time. And some would even whip themselves to cause, uh, to, to cause pain to themselves to make sure they understood that all that matters is things of the Spirit. Now, which one do you think was more popular at the time? <laughs> one was far more popular than the other, right? And so in this letter, John's going to address both of these very strongly. And so Steve hit one of these a couple weeks ago when he was in John chapter 2. So put that one up. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Here, Steve looked at this one. Who is the liar, John says, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So here he calls anyone that denies Jesus' uh, divinity the Antichrist. 
They're a liar. They're a false teacher. They are not of God. That's the point he makes here in chapter 2. If you claim that Jesus is not fully God, you are the Antichrist. You are against Christ. You're against Jesus, right? And now in chapter 4, he's going to hit the other side of the equation. In chapter 4, as we just looked in verse 2, check this out. So, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. So what did he say here? Now he says, if someone says Jesus is not fully human, not fully in the flesh, they are the Antichrist. They are not of God. They are not one of you. They are false teachers. So the Antichrist, he claims, are those who are not agreeing that Jesus is fully God or fully human. He makes it that black and white, right? This is the Antichrist. This is the liar. These people are against Jesus and not of God. And this is John's kind of central argument in this book when it comes to testing the spirits. Who are the false teachers and who are not the false teachers? It really comes down to these things. The false teachers were primarily teaching this Gnostic understanding, this Gnostic teaching that was in some ways a little more fun to believe because you can get away with anything, but it was destroying the church. And Paul and John and others are so concerned about it. So John tells them to test the spirits, determine which of them are false teachers. And again, to do this, it's not a difficult test that requires them to be fluent in Greek or Aramaic or understand chemical engineering in Mandarin, right? It's not a difficult test. He makes it really simple. In fact, he makes it simple as well to the chosen lady in his second letter in, John, in, in the second John. So in second John, he's writing to this woman and he says to the chosen lady, he says this in verse seven. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. These are the false teachers. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Again, sound familiar? They deny that Jesus is fully human. This is the deceiver and the antichrist, he says. Again, just a repetition from what we just read. He says to the lady, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ about his humanity, that he is fully human, does not have God. Again, same thing he said in 1 John. The one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The one who holds to this foundation of Jesus, fully human and fully God. 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching about Jesus, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So, so there is the test laid out really clearly. It's a simple test. Do you believe that Jesus is fully human? And do you believe that Jesus is fully God? That's the test John gives them to determine whether they are an antichrist or not. Right? You can't get much more black and white than that. I mean, think of all the stuff John could have said about how to determine if someone's a false teacher or not. I mean, there is so much stuff in all of Paul's letters he could have hit on. Right? I mean, think of the things you would put in your own list if you were to make a list of how to determine if someone is a false teacher. Right? There's endless YouTube clips that will help you out with that one. Right? It would be a pretty long list right, of all the things that we would put on the list. 
I mean, he could have talked about infant baptism. He could have talked about full immersion baptism. He could have talked about the existence of hell. He could have talked about speaking in tongues, the end times, homosexuality, the most theological issue, vaccinations and masks, right? He could have, he could have talked about any of these things, but those were not, not that those are not important, but that's not where he put his energy. The thing that he said determines false teacher or not, of God or not, was do you believe that Jesus is fully human and do you believe that he is fully divine? And so these are the two things he hammers in this letter. And then in this letter, he also adds two additional elements to it in 1 John. Because there's actually four main things he hits in this book. One, Jesus is fully human. Two, Jesus is fully divine. And then also, over and over again, even as Esther was speaking this morning, is that we cannot walk in sin as a default. It is not an option. And the last one being, we must practically love one another. That's kind of gospel of the letter of 1 John in a nutshell. And so... With what's going on, it makes sense why he's saying this, because as Paul said, people have these itching ears, right? They have these ears. They're trying to accumulate, get people, gather people who will tell them what they want to hear. They want to listen to the message that feels good to them. They want an echo chamber around them, right? We don't do that today, thankfully. But back then, they want an echo chamber of people to just tell them the things they want to hear, and they're finding teachers who will tell them those things. And so Gnosticism and denying Jesus' humanity, which is what that is, sounded very appealing. Because if Jesus wasn't fully human, if he didn't really come in the flesh, it means they could spiritualize everything he said and did. And they could just philosophize about it and make it simply good ideas that didn't have any practical application. And that's what they did. They didn't actually need to live a righteous life. That was just a good idea that Jesus was talking about and was possible for God to do, but clearly not possible for humanity. That was just an ideal life that Jesus spoke of, a good idea. They don't have to actually care for the poor. That's what Jesus did. But he wasn't human, so that's not actually a real requirement of us as human beings because that was just what God did, right? When they, did, when they removed the incarnation as humanity, things get a whole lot easier. They could just philosophize and spiritualize all his teachings and not feel any conviction to actually live it out. They didn't have to actually pray for the sick and to pray for healing and do any of those things because Jesus could do that because he was God. No human could be involved in any of those kinds of things, so all that stuff didn't apply to them. That was just good ideas from God speaking as God, but no human could live this stuff out. How they lived their lives didn't matter under this understanding. This is the false teacher that's taking over the church. And so they could pursue their own comfort and their own pleasure above all else because the body's bad. Do what you want. It doesn't actually matter. And they could spiritualize as long as they were gaining more knowledge and more understanding and getting fatter heads, they were doing good. They could debate all day and all night Jesus' sayings. Blessed are the poor. They could just spend all day just debating what does he mean by poor and what is blessed? Or take up your cross and follow me. So what really is a cross? And, and what is my cross? And what are crosses? And what does it mean to take one up? Let's look at the, at the Hebrew origins of where that comes from and everything else. Or if you love me, obey my commandments. Wow, what is love? Let's debate. What, does, what Greek word of love is used there and the significance of love? And what does obey really mean? They could just debate all this stuff and not actually have to live it out. And so the early church was stopping to emphasize the incarnation and Gnosticism as a result taking over. And instead, they were following the popular teachings of the day. A popular teaching, again, that emphasized the pursuit of comfort and pleasure over all else, right? That you did, as long as you enjoyed it, it was good. 
a popular teaching that it said that what you do with your body doesn't really matter as long as it feels good. A, a popular teaching that says as long as you believe in God, you're good. As long as you have the knowledge about Him and you believe and you make mental assent saying that you agree to these things, you're saved, you're good. What you do beyond that doesn't matter. You don't have to change your life to be more like His. Now, praise God, we don't struggle with those kind of teachings today at all, right? That sounds, that's, that was 2,000 years ago, Gnosticism. Because lost Gnosticism literally is having knowledge, is what that means. And so, the more you know, the better. What knowing is most important. Having truth is most important. And you don't actually have to love your brother very well. You don't have to sacrifice for one another. You don't need to obey the teachings of Jesus. Just memorize them and repeat them. If you can repeat them in Greek, even better. Aramaic, man, you've already won, right? Or, or just post them on Instagram and talk about how much it impacted you. But don't have any life change. And this is why Jesus, John says over and over, and Jesus, you actually have to do it. You have to live it out. You have to carry it out. It's not enough just to talk about it. Now, a couple weeks ago, Steve also covered in 1 John, the other John 3, 16 through 18, right? And I love that passage. So let's go there. 1 John 3, 16, he says this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, that's Jesus, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Great point. 17. But whoever has worldly goods, now here's the application he gives of it. Whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let's not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So John tells them here that it, if, it's not enough to actually just say that you love God if you're not actually loving people. And he says to the point that he says, if there is someone in your church who is in need, and you do not, and you have, and you do not help them, God's love is not in you. You don't know God, and God doesn't know you. If there is a practical need that you're aware of, that you can meet, and you don't, the love of God is not in you. And this is, again, specifically speaking of people in the church. Now, that's pretty intense. He's saying, if you, and that's for people to say, because he gives the example that Jesus loved us, and now we must love others. And it's not enough to go, wow, thank you, let's sing a worship song. No, the practical, well, yes, sing a worship song, that's great. But the practical application of that is now go and practically love your brothers and sisters. It must happen. If it's not linked to action, he says, you don't know who Jesus is. Or as Jesus' brother James said in his book, the book of James in chapter 2, verse 26, he says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Right? And John's in the same line. He's like, there has to be actions behind our beliefs. In fact, John records Jesus saying the exact same thing in the other letter where the, he recorded, he didn't write it, but of the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus. And in chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus. And there's a crazy passage here where he's, he's talking to this church, and here's what he says in verse 2 to the church of Ephesus. This is Jesus encouraging the church. And he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So Jesus says, well done, church of Ephesus. You have dealt with the false teaching in your midst. You've held to truth. Well done. That's awesome. Good job getting rid of all the false teachers. Great job, right? And now we should hear this great thing of praise upon the church. But we go to verse 4. But, Jesus says, 
I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he says, you've abandoned your first love and the works that were associated with that. Now, most scholars all agree here he's referring to is the love of Jesus and a love for one another and the practical works that showed that they loved Jesus and that they loved one another and the penalty for this, the penalty for just having really good truth, really good knowledge and having no false doctrine and really good sound doctrine and really good teaching in this church, the penalty for that, he says, I will remove your lampstand. And if you read the other, just before this, that means they will cease to exist as a church. They will no longer exist because it has been only done in, in words and belief only, not in actions. And he says, you need to be loving Jesus and loving others with the works and the way you did, practically living that out, he says, or you have no future. It's over. Because just having sound doctrine, just having good truth, just having no false teachers is not enough. We have to live out the teaching, right? But if you have a Gnostic understanding, you don't need to do any of those things. You don't actually have to do the stuff. If Jesus wasn't human, you can just spiritualize it all. So this is the situation John is writing into. But is it really much different for us today? I mean, we don't have as much of a problem with false teachers traveling around being in the pulpit each week and being in our homes. I mean, when was the last time you had to kick someone out of your home because they were an evil false teacher? I mean, maybe a family member or something, but uh, hopefully not, right? A little different. Um, but that's, it's, our situation today is quite different in our context. But I would say that our situation today is actually far more dire than it was for them back then. Because instead of worrying about false teachers in the pulpit every week, we have false teachers whispering and wooing us all day, every day, right in our pockets, right? Telling us our itching ears what we want to hear creating a narrative that's just catered to us, that gives us an echo chamber of exactly what we want to hear, the way we want to hear it, telling us everything we want to believe, and it's distracting us from everything that God is doing. We have these false teachers right in our pockets with us all the time. Well, rarely in our pockets, usually in our hand, right? And, and all day long, to the point that sometimes, I mean, it's happened once to me where the, the phone's sitting on the side and a child comes and brings them, like, Daddy, you left your phone behind. Like, they think it's supposed to be attached to your hand sometimes, right? They, a child thinks it's wrong. How sick is that? Um, because these this false teachings are with us all the time. We can't get away from it. We curate it into our hearts and minds. And it's distracting us from so much of what God intends for us. It's leading us down destructive patterns. It's numbing us to the world around us. And it's tempting us to spend far more energy debating theology and social issues and politics than actually spending energy obeying what Jesus said to do. Than actually, thank you, than actually loving one another. So I'm from Africa. I'm used to amens like after every statement. So I'm, eventually maybe we'll, we'll, we'll retrain the church. But uh, thank you. That warms my heart. Um, and, uh, and so we, we, we fill ourselves with these things, with false teaching all around. I mean, I'm convinced that the impact of Gnosticism is greater today than at any point in history, where we just pursue knowledge and right belief and right understanding and, and, and forsake actually living it out. We often fight far harder to convince someone of our opinion of why we're right and they are wrong than we actually fight to care for people and to listen to their understanding. 
Or we simply grow numb and we tune out the pain of the world because we're so, there's so much information overload. We've just numbed ourselves with endless scrolling and endless series of Netflix. I mean, even COVID has shown us in so many ways how incredibly selfish we are as we fight for my rights and we fight and hoard our toilet paper and we just become more insular with our own people and we see what our natural tendency to do is. I mean, it's just information overload. I mean, across the globe, the significance, I believe, is I've spent my life traveling overseas. Across the globe, the church has so de-emphasized the incarnation and the humanity of Christ and the significance of the fact that Jesus is and was fully human as well as fully divine. And in some ways, this is just a preview of the fall. Is my fall series, when I teach for the fall, is going to be called, um, Who is this man called Jesus? We're just going to spend the fall looking at the humanity of Christ. Because... If Jesus really became human and entered into humanity, as John hammers in this text, it's kind of a big deal, right? It's kind of a really, really big deal. And not just so he could die on the cross for our sin, though that's awesome, right? Because if Jesus really was and is fully human, if he lived a fully human life among us, empowered in everything he did by the Holy Spirit, it means that everything he said and did was real. It means that he wasn't joking and he wasn't exaggerating. It means that he was showing us what it means to be fully human, the way that he intended it to be. He showed us how to live the life that he intended for all humanity. Jesus showed us that. He, and he says, come and follow me, not as some a spiritualized ideal, but to say, no, actually, watch what I'm doing and then go do that. Literally, go do, go say the things I'm saying. Go talk to those people. Go love those people the same way that I'm loving them. It means we can't just memorize and repeat his stuff and think we're doing good. It means we can't just mentally assent to believing in him and think we're doing well. It means we can't just go, wow, God is awesome and have great times of praise and worship and not actually recognize that we're called to live out that example in our own lives. You know, back in January, I was teaching in Philippians here. And, and I, I referred us back to Philippians chapter 2, that, that incredible hymn of Christ that Paul records there in Philippians chapter 2, where he, he talks about Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He made himself nothing and he died on a cross right? It's this incredibly beautiful passage as Paul brings out the literature, the beauty of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And we read that and we write worship songs and we sing and we go, wow, God, you're amazing. But the thing is, Paul didn't put that there so that we would sing a worship song about him. He wrote it there because just before it, he says, we must walk in humility and care for others more than we care for ourselves, love our brothers. And he says, and we must do this the way Jesus did it. And then he shares how Jesus did it. Jesus came from heaven to earth. God emptied himself, kenosis, he emptied himself, came to earth as a slave and died for us. He goes, that's what humility looks like. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Right? So it's not just going, wow, Jesus, you're awesome. But saying, oh, wow, Jesus, help me to live like you lived. Help me to love others the way you help me conform to your life and your ways and do what you actually said and not just talk about it. You know, a, a number of years ago, I heard a sermon by uh, Francis Chan that I've, I've never forgotten. I loved it. And in the sermon, he, he was talking about uh, the game Simon Says, 
right? And he says, you know, the old game Simon says, Simon says, pat your head. And so everyone pats their head. Or Simon says, jump on one foot. And so everyone, you jump on one foot. And he says, you don't say Simon says, pat your head. And you go, well, I'm patting my head in my heart. Or go jump on one foot. Well, I'm going to read a book about what it means to jump on one foot, right? No, you just do the thing that's said. And so Chan then says, so what about the game called Jesus Says? Right? So when Jesus says to do something, it seems that our current understanding is when Jesus says to do something, all we need to do is go memorize it and repeat it. Or put it on a refrigerator. Right? Or post it on Facebook. That, that's what we need. And if you memorize it in Greek, again, you're, you're doing even better. So that's what the game Jesus says is. And then he uses the example of his daughter. And I'll just switch and use JJ as an example. Imagine if I told my son, I said, JJ was eight years old, and I said, JJ, go clean your room. And so JJ says, okay, dad. And he goes away. And then a few hours later, I come back and his room is an absolute disaster. And I go, JJ, I told you to clean your room. He's like, I know you said, clean your room. That's great. And I said, no, no, no. Why isn't your room clean? He goes, daddy, I understand. You said, go clean your room. He's like, I've learned to say it in Greek. He says, I've learned to say it in Chinese. He goes, check this out. Chu da sao nita fong jen. Chu da sao nita fong jen. Chu da sao nita fong jen. Isn't that awesome, daddy? Chu da sao nita fong jen. I've learned it in your own language, daddy. That's great, isn't it? I'm like, no, I said clean your room. And he's like, but even better, this afternoon, I got a few of my buddies coming over and we're all gonna have a Bible study about what it means for me to clean my room. <laughs> well, aren't you proud of me, daddy? Look at how much I've learned. Now we can laugh at that, but I hope there's a little bit of conviction hitting our hearts because that's what we do all the time. We do that so often. It's so common for us to play that game. And this is why all throughout Scripture, and especially here in this letter of 1 John, he's saying we have to take action. We have to actually do what Jesus said. We have to conform our lives to be more like his. It's not complicated, but man, it can be hard to live out. We would often much rather be Gnostics. We would much rather just philosophize and talk about truth and talk about doctrine than actually live out what it means to do that in our lives today. You know, in South Africa, before I come back here, again, I was on the missions number of years. We spent the last 12 years living in South Africa. And, and one of the ministries I was heavily involved with was I worked with some of those broken people in that society, working with gangsters and pimps and murderers and, and prostitutes and, and just working in their homes and, and loving on them. And I used a model called a DBS, or a, a Discovery Bible Study uh, approach to be a discipleship, um, often part of what's called DMM or disciple-making movements, if you've heard about that, one of the fastest-growing models of church planting in the globe and even here in the States as well. And in this model, idea is keeping it as simple as possible. So what I would work is I'd, I'd go find out where the, where the gangsters were hanging out in, in the area of that, in kind of these rundown parts of the city. And I'd go befriend a few of them, and then I'd go into their homes and say, hey, it would be okay if someday I come in, like next week, you gather your friends together, and we just talk a bit about Jesus and what about God's doing in this community. And for some reason, they would almost always say yes. And I'd get these groups going of them and their buddies in their house. And the, the, the Bible study was really basic. So we'd, we'd get together, and then I'd tell a story about Jesus, like, Jesus uh, forgiving the woman caught in adultery. And then we go around the circle, and all six or eight of the guys, each of them would repeat the story, including myself, whatever they heard in the story. We'd read it out twice, and they'd repeat whatever they heard in the story. Then we'd go back around the circle again, and everyone would share what did they learn about Jesus in that story. Very simple. Then we'd go back around the circle one more time, and everyone would make what we call an I will statement. Right? An I will statement saying, this week, because of what I just learned, this week I will do blank. Right? And that was the basic format. And then after that, we'd go around one more time again, and they'd share, who are you going to tell about this story to this week? 
Right? Now, remember, these are not even, these are way before Christians. Like these are pre 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 believers. Right? These are guys well well into their brokenness and, and violence and murdering and all the rest of it. And so we do that. And then the most important thing is the next week when we gather together, the very first thing that we do when we gather together is each person shares how they did with their I will statement. How did they do doing the thing that they said they would do? And then how did they do sharing that story and who did they share it with? It's awesome. And so uh, it was amazing. I mean, the stories that would come out. So first of all, the I will statements were probably a little different than they would be from this room. Uh, so, I mean, I could, I could go, man, I got endless stories about this stuff. It, sometimes it's, it's just fun. Other times it's downright scary um, as they say what they're going to do. I mean, like a real one, honestly, would come through multiple times was, you know, like today this guy crossed me the other day and I was planning tonight to go home and stab him. But after reading this, you know, I'm thinking, maybe I don't need to stab him. And we're like, Good application. Let's not kill anyone today. Like, that's a great application of Jesus forgiving the woman caught in adultery. Let's not commit murder. Like, well done. I really hope you keep that one. That would be a good one to keep on the way home, right? Another guy would say, I beat this up, this guy up, beat him black and blue because he crossed me. And I'm thinking, maybe I should go check on him to see how he's doing. I'm like, great application of what you saw in Jesus' life, right? That's awesome. And, and so they would just be practical and simple living out the gospel. You know, studies have been done that have showed often the traditional Western form of Bible study, where you read a passage and everyone gives a long diatribe of their understanding of the passage and connecting it to this passage, the Old Testament here and that thing here, and everyone's showing off their knowledge of the Bible. They've shown that the more energy you spend on showing off your knowledge, the less energy is actually spent on application. And that's why this model was created. We don't, we're not interested in all, not that knowledge doesn't matter. Knowledge is a good thing. I study all the time. I'm reading constantly. I love to study, but it has to be applied. And this model was all about let's get to the obedience part. Let's go change the world. Let's see God impact our lives and the lives of others around us. And that was for people who didn't even know Jesus. We're talking about people the first time I've met them, if it was their first time coming there, and they're already stepping this out. I mean, we're meeting in the homes of drug addicts and drug dealers. We're, we're, there's, there's stolen merchandise all around us. There's often drug paraphernalia. Most of the guys are as high as a kite on crystal meth. That's the big drug there. And I mean, it's just a, it's a weird situation. In fact, sometimes we have to pause what we're doing because a customer comes in the door and they have to do the transaction, buy their drugs. We pass it around. We kind of pause. They leave with their drugs and then we keep studying about Jesus. So it, I mean, it's just a, a unique Bible study environment. It's so simple and so basic, but yet so many lives transformed as a result. Because sometimes I think we can get so mature in our faith that we stop actually living it out and we become more Gnostic. Seeking out higher forms of knowledge or greater degrees of truth rather than simply loving Jesus and obeying him. Knowledge has to be lived out. And that's why, again, in this, this letter, the first John, it's about a letter of action. Black and white, let's get out there and do these things. And John knew this. He was the last living apostle alive, and he saw what was going on in the church. He saw the beauty of his, the bride of Christ that was moving away from the teachings of Jesus. And you don't have to learn Chinese or chemical engineering. You don't have to master the Greek language to be able to obey it. It's meant for farmers and fishermen. Right? It's meant for the average people. It's meant for the average person to read it, learn about Jesus, and apply it to their lives. And all we have to do is acknowledge that Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. And that as a result of that, we need to actually conform our lives to live and love the way that he did. Not in our own strength, because Jesus didn't just do it by pulling up his own bootstraps. He did it fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to do. 
And we're going to spend a lot of time on this in the, in the coming months and years because this is kind of, I kind of have one message as you'll see as we go forward. It's, it's going to be about Jesus, right? And us conforming our lives and impacting the community and the nation around us as we actually experience the life of Christ in and through us. And so for application today as we finish, what is a practical application that we can do? What is something that maybe God has been putting upon our hearts that's been lingering there for a while, we've been kicking around for a little while, and we've not actually taken steps of obedience on? What I will statement could we make today? So maybe for some of us, maybe we've been struggling with pornography and we know it's been eating at our heads and doing other stuff and we know we need to seek help or, or get rid of that device or move that computer out of our room or, or seek an accountability partner, but we've not yet done it. And so an I will statement today, and we're gonna give a chance in a few minutes for an I will statement. An I will statement today would be, I need to go find my accountability partner and talk to him. Or, or maybe we've been struggling with our marriage and it's grown cold and we feel like we're like roommates living in the same house and we're not actively pursuing one another. And so an I will statement for us today is to seek the Lord and say, Lord, today I will pursue my wife or I will start, I will make the phone call to, to pursue marital counseling or I'll talk to Steve or, or Shan or James or someone else and I'll get the ball rolling because we need to make a difference in our marriage. I'm tired of just talking about it, but we need to take action. Or, or maybe it's been weeks or months since we've actually spent quality time with Jesus. And an application for us would be, today I will take time to spend some time with the Lord and change the rhythms of my life. Or maybe something at work, that we've been wasting time with Zoom, we can get away with remote work and wasting a lot of our employees' time they're getting paid for, or maybe we've been stealing, or, or walking in some form of deceit of some kind, and we need to repent. Because it's been something that we know is there, our conscience is starting to get seared and we recognize it and we need to repent. And so today we need to say, Lord, I will repent. And we pick a time and we actually repent and change the way we're living. Whatever it is, let's make an I will statement of what God is speaking to us today. So what I want to do is I'm just going to take one minute of silence and then the worship team will come up. And I want us just to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you speaking to me? Ben, not just right now, what have you been speaking to me that I keep pushing off? it's just a good idea. I know it's there, but I just keep pushing it off. And come up with an I will statement saying, this week I will, or today I will blank. And make it specific. Make it simple. All right? So Father, we come to you right now, and I just ask right now that you would speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts and show us what it is, not out of conviction or not out of shame, not out of guilt, but simply remind us of something that you've been reminding us about. And may right now, may we take a minute, may we obey you and put it into practice and make a plan to actually carry this thing out in our life. All right, Holy Spirit, speak to us right now. Let's just take one minute in silence and let the Spirit speak. Let us seek to obey Jesus, to live in love like him. Or as John says in, his, in this letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other, 
but let us show the truth by our actions. Amen.